Hello everyone, this is Hashim Fs Economics or Hashim Fakhtsadiyate. Hashim Fs Economics is a series of conversations about economics, science, development, education, Central Asia and Uzbekistan. Hope you enjoy. James Robinson, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll start right away. Okay. And I know it's a cliche and I know you have been in 100 talks about it, but I have to ask, so why do nations fail? Uh, <laughs> well, they fail economically. I think that's that's the important thing. The focus is about economic development. Failure could be some very broad thing, but we're really trying to focus on economic underdevelopment. And what's, why is it that some countries are much more successful economically than other countries? And we say the unsuccessful ones fail. And they fail because, because they don't have the right institutions, the right rules that, that create incentives and opportunities. If you want to have prosperity, you need to have innovation, you need to have entrepreneurship, you need people to invest. And for that, you need incentives and, and, and opportunities. And, and that's structured by the rules in society, by what we call institutions. The institutions vary enormously around the world with very different kind of consequences for incentives and opportunities and very different consequences for economic success or failure. Um, the fact that institutions are important, I think, was uh, was a broad consensus in economics and yeah. political science. I, I think the, the question that, that begs here is like, uh, where do good institutions come from? Right. So, so you're right. You know, I mean, if you read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, yeah. you know, in some sense, it's about institutions. And a lot of economics is about markets and property rights and, you know, monopoly is bad. And so, 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 so you're right. So, so what I explained maybe is the most, the thing that we can all agree on, you know, which yeah, is consensus. institutional variation has all these consequences for the efficiency of resource allocation and prosperity. But I guess, Maybe what's more different about our book or our approach is trying to understand that variation in institutions. You know, so why is it that some parts of the world have terrible institutions in terms of their economic effects and others have much better institutions? And for us, that's about that's about politics. You know, so so we make in the book this this distinction between what we call extractive economic institutions and inclusive economic institutions. So extractive economic institutions are associated with poverty and inclusive economic institutions are associated with prosperity. And, you know, inclusive economic institutions, what's that about? It's about the creation of broad-based incentives and opportunities. So, but why is it that, why did, what, what explains the variation in extractive economic institutions in North Korea, for example, versus much more inclusive economic institutions in South Korea? Well, that's to do with the politics. So lying behind this variation in economic institutions is variation in political institutions. So that's, for us, the key, the key step is to go beyond the economics and think about the politics that lies behind institutional variation. In your book, you, you use North Korea, South Korea a lot. And also you have an example of Nogales, Arizona versus Nogales, Mexico, yeah. and so on. Uh, but in general, I think, when one reads your book, it, it feels as if good institutions come from like idiosyncratic events, you know, you know, division of Korea or, or something that, that's very, very exogenous or like yeah. it comes from, from the sky. So do we have to wait 
for a good luck that our institutions will improve? No, I mean, I, you know, I think we use those examples because they're what we call natural experiments. That's what social scientists would call natural <laughs> experiment. You know, there's a sort of variation in institutions which is kind of exogenous to other factors that you might think would create prosperity or like poverty. geography, culture. Exactly. So, you know, his career, you know, with a, centuries of common history, language, religion, political climate. unification. Huh? Climate too, right? Yeah, and then suddenly it gets split in half, you know, in the in the late 1940, in the 1940s, and two very different sets of institutions get set up, you know, it's north and south of the border. And that, you know, you're, the example you mentioned of Nogales, you know, on the border of Mexico and the United States is kind of very similar. Like, historically, this border gets created, you know, and it's everything's a very comparable on different sides of the border from a sort of cultural or geographical point of view. But then you get this massive divergence in economic development because north of the border, you know, in Nogales, it gets incorporated into the United States with very different sets of institutions from south of the border, which gets incorporated into Mexico. But 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 so then, that you know, you're talking about the third part of the book yeah. in some sense, which is you could say there are three parts to the book, which is. There's this making this argument about the relationship between economic institutions and prosperity. Then they're saying, okay, but lying behind this variation in economic institutions is political institutions. And then the next question, which you're raising, is, you know, how come political institutions look so different? You know, and our perspective on that, you know, which we actually we get a lot more into in our new book, is that that's history. You know, that's that's about history. You know, so so in the so first chapter in. Like, what do you mean history? Do you mean like or oracle? I mean, I mean, you know, the way we, the language we use to talk about that is to say, yeah, there's many idiosyncratic, many idiosyncratic factors, you know, involved in the historical development of institutions. But it's really about power. You know, at the end of the day, the type of political institutions you get is about power, you know. So to get inclusive economic institutions, in our language, you need inclusive political institutions. And that's... That's 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 one of the components of that is, is broad distribution of power in society. So it's very hard to have inclusive economic institutions when political power is very concentrated in the hands of Fewer, the North yeah. Korean Communist Party. So you need power to be spread in society. So how how does power get spread in society? Well, people get organized, you know, they collect, act collectively. Think of the think of the Arab Spring, you know, people mobilize, people demand change, people so build coalitions and stuff. Yeah, so 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 how does that emerge in society? I think there's a lot of idiosyncratic reasons for that, but the language we use in the book is to sort of say there are these moments in history, what we call critical junctures, where societies get reformed and many different types of factors may operate at that moment so in the first chapter for example you know maybe the one of the best illustrations of this in the book is you know taking Nogales and then going back in history and asking you know how did the US and Mexico look why do they look so different and if you go back 500 years you see there's not much difference at all you know it's not much different at all like Europeans came they colonized North America they colonized South America they were all trying to do the same thing, get rich, exploit indigenous people, grab land, find gold and silver and El Dorado, whatever. And we sort of make this point, actually, if you look at the British colonization of the United States, 
that, that they were modeling themselves on the Spanish. You know, this wasn't some British cultural project. No, no, they wanted the same thing as the Spanish. They wanted gold and silver. They wanted to exploit indigenous people. They wanted to like live like kings, you know, in the new yeah. world. So, 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 but the context was very different, you know. Mortality rates? Yeah, but density of indigenous people, you know, gold and silver, like, you know, so the, the, like, so we point out there was a lot of different features which led colonial society to develop differently in North America in this critical juncture. And then that has enormous kind of consequences, path dependent, you know, we'd say to use social science jargon yeah. down the road. So, so, so that's a moment when these societies are shaped and formed and the distribution of political power is determined in particular ways. And that, at that moment, that can depend on all sorts of things, what, you know, what you're calling idiosyncratic processes. But once those societies sort of form themselves, then there's enormous amount of kind of inertia and, and, and continuity. You know? so, so I think you know, if you ask me to talk about this variation in the world, you know, like why does East Asia look the way it does or why Africa does or why Europe does, then I think that's where you have to go back to. You, know, you have to go back to these moments where, where you know, many forces often come together to shape societies in particular ways. And then that, you know, but that's a very messy, complicated yeah. process. I don't think, you know, if you're trying to explain variation in human society, there is some simple kind of master variable like climate or something like that, that really, or, you know, agricultural productivity. I think humans, you know, humans are very creative. They're very innovative. You know, they do all sorts of different things in different contexts. And, you know, I always think of the example of like, if you compare humans to like ants, there's lots of ant species, you know, like think about Darwin, uh -huh. you know, ants get into a, like a different environment the speciation and they adapt to a different environment. But Homo sapiens didn't do that. You know, Homo sapiens it's developed Homo sapiens in East Africa right? and they <laughs> spread to Greenland, you know. And what do they do in Greenland? They invented ice fishing and igloos and a, a taste for polar bear, you know, or seal. There's no seals in Ethiopia. And if you build an igloo in Ethiopia, it'll melt. So that's humans innovated to deal with these different contexts. They innovated technology, they innovated institutions, they innovate, you know, so, so that's, to me, that's the, that's the story. But that's a difficult process to kind of grasp because creativity explodes in lots of different ways. And so you have to find a framework for disciplining that, but it's, it's not a simple story, I don't think, unfortunately. So if you don't, except you know geographical cultural or other explanations that explain the variation in in development uh, of, of the countries how would you think about the fact that most of the poor countries are concentrated in the south yeah i you know i think so that's you know we did a lot of academic research on that because you know when 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 Asimoglu and i first started thinking about this 25 years ago uh there was a lot of research about how the tropics were poor and you yeah. know jeffrey sachs had his map of you yeah, know, the yeah, tropics yeah. Th that's why i'm asking this question temperate <laughs> zones were were rich and so we thought okay there's a real correlation there you know so how can you explain why that correlation exists you know in the data but it doesn't represent any causal relationship between climate and economic development and the answer we came up with is that you know, it's because this historical process of institution creation during the colonial period created this correlation between institutions and geography. 
And that's the real story, not the, not the geography itself. It just so happens that historically the way institutions were created in the colonial pe period created this correlation between institutions and latitude. And that's why there's a correlation between development and latitude. And that's, you know, again, that's for several reasons. But the most obvious one is that tropical latitudes were very unhealthy for Europeans. So European to settle. And uh, to to settle. So yeah. you didn't have these colonies of settlement in tropical latitudes and you, you get much more extractive institutions in that context. So there was much more focus on exploiting natural resources, exploiting indigenous people. And, and you know, and that pushed these societies and pushed these institutions in a particular direction. I see. Um the book Why Nations Fail is, is widely criticized uh, and, and widely read. I mean, I think it's criticized because it's widely read. Uh, what is your most favorite criticism that you think is valid? Ooh. Like I read Fukuyama's criticism, for example. I'm not saying it's the best, but what I'm saying is... Yeah. I, I do think, you know, and this is something that we, we're, we're trying to do kind of quite a bit of research on at the moment, it, you know, is... The, the specific nature of it, you know, so, so, so one of the difficult things about institutional analysis is that, you know, if I look at the details of institutions in, you know, any particular country, uh, North Korea, Zimbabwe in Africa, Colombia in South America, lots of the details are very different, you know, labor market institutions yeah. or property rights or the legal system or so, so, so one of the things that we try to do with this terminology of extractive institutions and, and and inclusive institutions is find a language that sort of is an umbrella term exactly yeah so 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 all the details of the institutions in north korea and zimbabwe and colombia might be very different but here's one thing they they have in common they're all extractive so 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 you need some simple language like that to kind of develop the argument but of course you know, if there are if, costs associated with well, well, yeah, there's costs associated. There's a trade-off yeah. there. You know, there's and you know, uh, you, you know, I could talk about two aspects of that. One aspect, of course, is that you know, if you want to give advice to people or you want to help people change society, you know, like my friend Timothy Milovanov yeah. in in Ukraine, then suddenly all the details become extremely important. You know, if you want to know what to change and how to change it. Then the de then it, it talking the, at everything this, is details. Yeah, talking yeah. about this at this very broad level about extractive and inclusive doesn't help you too much. And then you need to know about all the details, you know. And our book doesn't have much to say about that. And I think that's an important. I think I try to be trying to be very honest about that when people ask me. But I think that's that's just a problem with institutional analysis. You know, things are complicated and and the complications are important. You know, the context is important. The context is important. Yeah. So so you know we want to try to make this general argument, but there's trade-offs there. And the other the other thing I think also you know which is which is a problem which people have said you know about institutional analysis is that there's probably too much focus on certain types of institutions that are easy to observe or measure, like the legal system or the laws. Democratization. Or, yeah. Or something like right. that. Right. <laughs> but, but, but there's a lot of what, what Douglas North called informal institutions or social norms that are very important. You know, like you can't understand the difference between North America and South America just by looking at the books. laws yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, you, a lot of the social norms are very important. And... That's not well conceptualized, I think, in social science. It's much more difficult to measure and kind of estimate the effect on behavior or prosperity. And, and I think that, you know, 
I could give you many examples of how it, and that's something I'm try, we're trying to study in Africa and also in Colombia. But I think we've not done such a, the book doesn't do a good job at sort of clarifying these different distinctions. Yeah, we, we, you know, we tried to keep it simple to develop the argument, but that, that comes at a cost. And I think, you know, people have rightly criticized that. Yes. So uh, development economics before, say, the book or, 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 or your studies was about giving a whole bunch of money to, to, to the poor of the world, you know, creating yeah. the World Bank, building schools. Still wells. is, I think. Yeah, yeah, it still is. But like, you know, building yeah. a well, building a school, building a hospital and so on and so yeah. forth. And then the assumption there is that once you have some, some level of human capital, the development will follow. Right. Yeah. And your, and your book and, and your research, I guess, says like, you know, even if you check out a lot of boxes in terms of development and yeah. education and so forth, development is not, uh, is not going to happen necessarily. So yeah. those things are not sufficient conditions. They may be necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. But... Some people, you know, argue about this in, in, in the following way. They say, sure, institutions are important, but good institutions come from educated populace. So once you have certain level of literacy and education, yeah. then people will start demanding good institutions. How would you think about that? Well, we did, we did quite a lot of research on that too, you know, on this so-called modernization hypothesis about yeah. whether economic development or education actually leads to better institutions you mean the causal link, in right? some yeah. dimensions and we that we there's nothing there you know like there's no empirical once you look at the data properly you don't find any support for this modernization idea that development or education on its own will lead to better institutions so i just don't think the evidence supports that at all i mean i would say you know i mean it's very interesting the way you phrase that because this is one thing i've never understood you know i mean i've been an economist now for like 40 years or something and when i took economic development as an undergrad and then as a known school of economics and as a phd student most yeah. development economists are not interested in why countries are poor they just want to evaluate policy interventions you know like <laughs> and and that i just never understand that like whenever i go to a seminar and someone's presenting a development paper i ask myself Okay, this is about Indonesia. Did I learn anything about why Indonesia is a poor country? Probably not. This is a, yeah, exactly, yeah. and I've never understood that mentality. I think it because you know, that, but you articulated it very well. Yeah, because uh, you know, I'm from Uzbekistan, and in '92, Uzbekistan had almost 100 percent literacy rate. Everybody went to school. Uh, we had roads and airports, and hmm. you know, underground, you know, metro in the city of Tashkent that was built in 1977. So. Um, everybody was pretty healthy mortality rates were okay and so on but having all those you know necessary conditions we still couldn't yeah. develop and i think the the institutional part wasn't there and i still think that uzbekistan is one of the prime examples of showing basically that whatever the development economists want to achieve by building schools and wells and, and roads may you know at maximum make a country like uzbekistan in 92 but then the, the growth may not follow. So. Right. But, you know, maybe you, Uzbekistan has all sorts of latent, latent potential. You know, yeah. that gives it all sorts of latent potential and advantages that some country in Africa, you doesn't know, or have. Central America does, doesn't have. So there's a kind of optimistic way of, of thinking about that. You yeah. know, like think about China. You know, I mean, China 
you know, China had a very bad 200 years, you know, until the 1970s, like very bad from the 1980s, let's say. Like, yeah, you know, since, being, from the second yeah, half yeah, of the 18th yeah, century, yeah. things started yeah, going yeah, very yeah. bad in China. You know, the Grand Canal silted yeah. up and the Grand, you know, like the Qing state Civil fell apart. And, but yeah, yeah but, 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 but there's many aspects of Chinese society, it turns out, are very complementary with economic development, like this notion of meritocracy. I always yeah. give the, you know, it's more like a sociological idea. I don't think our theory captures yeah. this very well either. It's more, you know, just in China, just like talking of social norms, like this notion of meritocracy, it's very deeply ingrained. You know, Confucius said, you know, yeah, promote yeah. the worthy and talented. And, and that's how people think in China. You know, the University of Chicago, I'm sure Wisconsin and is full of all these Chinese students. And you ask these Chinese students, like, where did they come from? It's like all over. massive social mobility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You compare that with India, you know, yeah. you don't have that in India because yeah, you have this caste system, yeah, you yeah. have... So that's that's another problem with our theory, I'd say. You know, meaning there's other sources of variation in the world apart from what we emphasize. You know, here I'm kind of emphasizing almost a more sociological... Of course, it's connected yeah, yeah, yeah. to politics, but I, I, but I, you know, what's imp what impresses me... You know, you'll see reading the new book, there's a lot about China. <laughs> I, I, I've spent a lot of the last five years reading about Chinese history, trying yeah. to understand what goes on better in China. And I've become very impressed with that. This, I mean, just, just one example of a kind of sociological force, which, which, which you know, we, which we didn't capture either. Um, do you think economists, by and large, uh, don't understand, you know, context and anthropology and do you think it's a problem? Yeah, I don't think I don't think they think it's relevant. You know, like economists. Do you think it's a problem or not? I think it's a problem. It depends what you want to understand. No, I mean, I if, think, if you are doing development and, and yeah, I think know, it depends what you want to understand. You know, if you, if you want to understand, you know, why there's a hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, you don't you don't you don't need to understand anthropology. You know, because why not though? Like you know, the government prints money and then why it prints money because it has to you know repair the hospital. Like there there's a lot of. There's, okay. Context okay. Too. Yeah. So e even right. there, you know, I would kind so, of argue. With so, that. so that there's a deeper, there's a deep, <laughs> there's a deeper context in terms of the pressures that lead to this printing money. Yes. But we understand that the reason that there's hyperinflation is that the government is printing money. You know? Correct. Like, so there's yeah, a theory yeah. that kind of applies, you know, without knowing anything about Zimbabwe, and it is actually a correct theory. But you're right at yeah. some deeper level, of course. If I wanted to ask, you know, why is the government endlessly printing money? Then there's all these pressures, and there's politics, and yeah, there's corruption, yeah. and and then I have to get much more into the. Yeah, I think I think economists, you know, they they have in mind, you know, we have this general theory. It's like sort of physics, you know, it's like Newton's equations of planetary, you know, motion and gravity, and you know, we have markets and supply and demand and general equilibrium and. And that kind of explains everything. And it explains that applies in Argentina and Uzbekistan and you know, Zimbabwe. And we don't need to know anything. And that, that's, yeah, that's economists think like that, that. They think like physicists. It's somehow it's an offshoot of this immense kind of mathematization of economics, you know, that yeah. they kid themselves into thinking that, you know, they have you this general theory. Yeah. And, and, I think, you know, I'm, I'm an economist, you know, I like economics and I think the economic approach is very powerful, but you need to understand the context and, and, and it's lacking in lots of things. Also, it lacks, you know, it lacks enormous amount of understanding of the variation in the world in terms of societies and institutions and, you know, like the discussion of African development, for example, you know, which I work on a lot. 
goes on, you know, in a complete absence of any understanding or knowledge of African societies. And everything that I know, you know, based on my experience in Africa, is that all of these things, these aspects of African society, are extremely important in understanding how anything works, you know. Um, so do you think that development, like development economics is a field, uh, what, it, what it needs to do more of? Well, I think it needs to study things like that. It needs to study the context much more, much more seriously, and people need to ask themselves much more systematically. You know, it's not just about the causal effect of some intervention. It's about like why is this? Why is this country poor? You know, why doesn't think? Why don't things work? You know, and 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 just to kind of move beyond this obsession with the causal effect of development aid or interventions, and just try to ask much more systematically you know what's different about poor countries but what you're saying is is very messy though like you know if, if you want to publish an economics paper in development economics what you want is like oh we gave a whole bunch of books or we, we, we did some intervention yeah in some poor country and then here are the results or here is null, and you clearly show using experiments yeah. basically or, or, sure. or control trials and stuff a, a clean cut causal link between whatever you did and whatever the outcomes were yeah. If you come and say, you know, you have to understand the context, why the country is poor, then things get really messy and the context is really messy. Yeah. In terms of like publication and so on, and then like career progression, well, it's really, really, really Maybe messy. it's messy, but it's also fascinating and interesting. You know, like we, why did you become but an academic? Can you publish though? Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> of course you can publish. You know, I think, I think, I think the, you know, the, the, the we've shown you can publish. I think journals are full of, you know, stuff like that. There are people who work in that space, you know, and you can get things published and, and people, you know, so it, it, you just have to, you have to do it with the type of methodological tools that economists like, you know, I always tell student PhD students, you, you know, you can study any, anything you like, but, but, but you have to present it in a way that economists think is intellectually respectable. So I think you can study that. I think we've managed to study it. I think we've managed to publish things in good, journals, in good journals. Yeah. And, and so it can be done. And it's also like incredibly, Incredibly interesting, incredibly interesting. You know, like I just find the world so fascinating and all this variation in human societies. And and you know, I think so. Yeah, maybe it's more complicated than what you're describing, but it's also much more fun. And so you know. But to be fair, though, even in your work, right? Like if you read your journal articles and you read Why Nations Fail, it feels to me as if. You wrote Why Nations Fail because you couldn't put a lot of context in your papers. <laughs> That's Would true. Would you agree or not? Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's true that a lot of the examples in there was uh, were things that were in the academic papers that were then eliminated by referees or editors. Yeah, and then we one exactly. of the motivations That's, for writing Why Nations Fail was that. We wanted to put together a lot of things that we'd found very inspiring ourselves that had inspired ideas and research. So we thought, well, if you know, if we found them inspiring, perhaps somebody else, some student will find them inspiring. So let's but that's okay, you know, that's like but you put it in the paper. Well that's, that's what I'm saying. saying. <laughs> you know, but then but you still publish the paper and you write the paper and 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 and, and you know and and I think that's okay. I mean, I actually think that's okay, you know, and, and maybe just too much idiosyncratic detailed knowledge is, it makes it difficult to replicate or it makes it difficult. Like I, I like details a lot, you know, but I understand the average economist doesn't like details. So maybe it's good to kind of put them somewhere else. You know, it helps other people understand better 
what the study is about and why it's important and how it relates to things they understand. So it may be socially desirable to do what you're describing. Yeah. Uh, so we are in this uh, kind of stable equilibrium in which like, you, you know, moving is, is quite costly. But let me ask you a, a different question. None of my articles have ever been translated into Uzbek, you see. Oh, yeah, so yeah, so, yeah. so, I'm, so it's, it's good that I wrote yeah. that book. Uh, when you wrote your first book, Why Nations Fail, yeah. the first uh, book for the general audience. Right, yeah, we wrote a much more yeah, technical one yeah. before that. Yeah. Uh, did you expect it to be like international bestseller and a blockbuster type of book or not? Like what was your priors as you were writing the book? No, I mean... I think, I think, so Asimoglu gave these Lionel Robbins lectures at the London School of Economics in 2004, and we were going to write a book for the Robbins lectures. So we actually started writing a book, and then we decided it was too boring. It was just, it was too much cut and paste from articles and tables of regressions and statistics. And we thought there's no point, you know, people have read the articles. It's like, there's no point in writing this book. It's just a waste of everyone's attention and time. So if we're going to write a book, we should do something much more ambitious and different. And then I started teaching this class at Harvard when I was teaching at Harvard, which was sort of trying to do that, basically. And then we just thought like, oh, this, this is fun. You know, we read a lot of different things and, and, and we try to write in a different style. But I think you have no idea if you can be successful at that. You know, so I think, you know, that, the other, our first book, I remember having a conversation about this. The first book, you know, the technical one, sold about 10,000 copies so we thought okay if we sell 30,000 copies of this, we'll be happy yeah. we'll be like really happy that's like if we treble that you know so I think that's a metric of how I see. What confused was your we were yeah. you know because actually in English the book sold about a million if you add hardback softback and uh, electronic, e electronic yeah. it's about a million Wow. Copies. In, it's only, th you just English. said it, it was uh, 30,000 only in Ukrainian language, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, 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 so your, your priors about the whole thing was, well, was completely blown away off. by Ukraine. Yeah, so, okay. but I think, you know, these books, it's, you have to sort of capture a moment, you know, look at Piketty's book, you know, yeah, like Piketty, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. that book must have sold a million copies. And yeah. who, Piketty never thought it was going to really? sell a million. No, come on, you know, it's like full of detail yeah, yeah, and. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but somehow it catches people's imagination or the moment is right, you know. And, and, and I, so I think we were, we were lucky, you know, we were lucky. Uh. Okay. So um, I read Why Nations Fail in 2013, hmm. the first time, or 12. Or 12, 13. it came out in 12, yeah. Uh, and I, I think I was lucky because I was a junior in college that time and I was in the math department, but I was... Thinking about economics all the time because you know I was from Uzbekistan and mm. I was living in Singapore. It was a much richer country, and I mm. couldn't quite get what was going on. And this book was like uh, uh, very important in shaping my thinking. You know, oh wow, now now it all makes sense. And but when I was first starting looking for books in economics, mm. I couldn't find that many uh, contemporary economists writing books for the general audience. No. At that time. Yeah. But right now, in the last three to five years, man, there are so many uh -huh. books yeah. written by economists for the general audience. What yeah. happened? Why economists are writing books? Yeah. I, I, Did you start the movement? I don't know. It's a good <laughs> question. I mean, it's definitely true. Everybody's writing. Like, do you agree with this statement? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. Every yeah, modern economist has a book now. 
Yeah, I mean, you used to be told that writing books was a disaster, like nobody read them and it was bad for your career and it distracted from writing articles and that's what you should really be doing. Um, you know, people told that to us, but I guess Asimoglu and I, we've never, we never really cared what other people <laughs> thought about it. We've just kind of done what we thought was the right thing to do. We've never, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It's kind of hit and miss. You know, people get interested in an idea or they don't. Or, But we've always been very kind of, this is what we think is interesting and we're just going to do it. You know, because if you spend too much time worrying about what other people say, you're never going to do anything original. You know, that's what I, I tell students. Yeah. So you just have to believe in yourself and just kind of follow your impulses and like what you think is interesting and what drives your curiosity. And so, and just believe in that, you know. So, so, so. So yeah, people told us it was a waste of time writing a book, and why? Why were we doing it? We weren't any good at doing that. I I don't know like why, why why everybody's doing it now. Yeah, I I I, I don't know. Maybe it's because people realise you can be very successful doing this, you know. Uh, but, but people did it before us. Though, like right? Paul Collier wrote this book, The Bottom Billion. Yeah. Which I think was very successful. But you can count those people like in in, in one. Very hand. few. Yeah. yeah. Right yeah. now, every, I was in Thai airport two years ago, and I went to a bookstore in the airport. And there was uh, your book, Why Nations Fail in the Airport. Yeah. But I found a book by Alvin Roth, um, the, the Nobel Prize yeah. economist who, who does like, you know, mechanism design and right. stuff. Yeah. And he apparently had written a book called uh, Who Gets What? And I, I picked it up. So yeah. imagine it's a Bangkok airport and the book is about mechanism design. <laughs> and it's, it's a fun book. So I had like eight hours of layover. I, I read it <laughs> okay. through. But, but the, 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 that airport bookshop had at least dozens yeah. Of books written by contemporary economists yeah. on topics ranging sure from mechanism design. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure I have an like, explanation. I'm sure that the yeah, incentives didn't change no. very much, and I no. was like, "What's going on?" No, okay. this true. Yeah, I don't think the incentives changed, but but yeah, you're, it's herd behavior. I don't, I don't know. I don't have an explanation. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, let's talk about Professor Robinson. Uh, one of the curious parts of your biography to me was uh, you did your undergraduate and masters in in Britain, yeah. and you're British. Yeah. But you went to Yale for your PhD. Why mm -hmm. did you choose USA for a PhD? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, you know, I was, when I was, I was just, I went to the London School of Economics to study political science. You know, it was 1979. Mrs. Thatcher had just been elected. It was a very political moment. But then every political meeting I went to, people just talked about economics the whole time, monetarism and Hayek yeah, 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 and Milton yeah. Friedman and yeah. privatization and the market. And so I thought, like, oh man, I, you know, I need to understand economics, you know. So then I started taking these proper economics classes and I just found them so much more inspiring than the political science classes I was taking. You know, political science was so descriptive and economics, it looked like there was a real kind of me mechanism for like getting answers to questions, you know. And in the economics class, which was taught by Mikio Morishima, who was a very distinguished Japanese mathematical economist, it was about everything, you know. It was about why central planning in the Soviet Union failed and what created capitalism and the role of Protestant Protestantism. You know, we read Weber's Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. We read Keynes, you know, we read Volra, we read Marx, we read, you know, Schumpeter. It was just really big, inspiring questions about the world. And I thought like, okay, you know, like forget political science, you know, I'm going to switch to economics. But then I got just fascinated with trying to understand this thing, you know, like how does it economics, how does it work? How does 
you know, I just didn't, I just got, I didn't understand. I was very confused when I was an undergraduate, but I just knew I loved it, you know, and I just wanted to, and that was what I wanted to understand. So then I, I did this master's degree and one at Warwick, University of Warwick. And my plan was to do a PhD in England at the LSE. I got a, a scholarship to go to Warwick. So the government yeah. paid, you know, so that's why I went to Warwick and Warwick is a great place. I, and I remember I went to this professor, Ken Wallace is an econometrician who did his PhD at Stanford. And I asked him, like, I want to do a PhD in economics. You know, I really like this. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but, but, but I, you know, he said, so where are you going to apply? And I said, well, London School of Economics here, Oxford. Oxford, Cambridge. And he said, why don't you go to the United States? And I said, what? He said, yeah, why don't you go to the United States? Do a PhD in the United States. And I said, well, who'd pay for that? And he said, they pay. I said, seriously? Oh, it so it never like occurred to decision. me. Never occurred to me. Okay. And then I went to Marcus Miller, who was another professor of mine, who did his PhD at Yale. And I said, Professor Wallace says I should do a PhD in the United States. What do you think? And he said, fantastic idea. So I, was, I had massive support from the people there. There were many people with US PhDs there. And then I just thought, gosh, why not, you know? Uh, but I was, you know, this is the pre-internet days, yeah, you know, yeah. like you could, there were no web pages to look yeah, up. 79, right? It was, no, this was 85 I was oh, applying. Okay. So then, you know, everything was on the mail and it, you know, you, it was, you know, it was like, you can't imagine, you're a young guy, you can't imagine that world, you know, uh, where you do things with letters and stuff. So then, you know, so that's, so I didn't know where to apply, but Marcus Miller did his, you know, Wallace did his PhD at Stanford, like California, that was like a, that was like Too going far, to Uzbekistan, right? yeah. you know, like it's like the <laughs> it's University the of Tashkent. So, so it was just I could like California seriously. So, yeah. so then he did his PhD at Yale, Marcus Miller, and he said, "I'll write you a letter for to Yale." Yale. Oh. You know, like my friend Willem Bauta is there, and like I'll write you a letter for Yale. Uh, go, you should go to Yale. So I applied to Yale, and I got into Yale, and they gave me a scholarship. So I went. You know, I was very badly informed, but I loved it. You know, and then you come to the United States, and you just think like suddenly your whole worldview changes, you know, and your professional goals become succeeding and navigating in American academia. And so that's, you know, here I am all those years later. Yeah. So what do you think of current state of British higher education? And in my opinion, yeah, British higher education institutions are lagging behind American ones. Do you agree with this statement? And if yes, then why? I... I think so, but I think there's been a lot of change, you know, like there's a but lot of... But they still of lag, you think? Yeah, you know, maybe, yes, they do, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of change in Britain, you know, there's a lot of openness and social mobility, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know so much other, other academics, but if you look at economics or political science, you know, political science is kind of moving even slower than economics. Yeah. Any, you know, you go to the University of Bath or the University of Bristol or yeah. it's full of foreigners, you know, they're just like anyone from all over the world can come and they hire I have a friend talent. Warwick from Uzbekistan. Huh? I have a friend in Warwick from Uzbekistan. There you go. You know, yeah. it's like, it's, it's, so I, no, Warwick, so, so I think, a lot of, you know, like it used to be a lot of these places are very incestuous. You know, they just hire their own students. Yeah. and But I, I think that's all sort of crumbling. I don't think there isn't the kind of resources that you have in the U.S. You know, like yeah. in the U.S., especially private universities like Chicago or whatever, they're very good at raising money. And so there's a lot more resources here. The British universities, with a few exceptions, I think the London School of Economics has got very good at doing that. But, but 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 they're not even so Oxford good. Oxford or Cambridge are not as big of names as they used to be. Like say, 
even in economics, for example, like Alfred Marshall was in Cambridge. Yeah. Or something. Like, you know what I'm thinking? Like, even among econ departments, do you think like British schools are better, are, are in like top 10? Would you think? I, you know, I think there's a lot of very good scholars in those places. I, you know, I think there's constraints on modernizing. You know, in a place like Oxford, for example, undergraduate education, they're incredibly committed to this very intensive seminar culture. You know, if you go to Oxford as an undergraduate, you meet, you know, for hour after hour, one-on-one. -on -one with, with your professor. Yeah, right? yeah, but like most people were never willing to do that. Like, you know, like most academics in the United States, if they offered me a job at Oxford and they'd expect me to spend hour after hour after Without hour minutes. with these one on, I'd never do it. I wouldn't agree to, you know. So I think they want to maintain that culture and it's a fantastic education. You know, you get a fantastic education, but making that compatible with kind of US style Research career incentives yeah. and opportunities is actually a challenge, you know. So I think that you know that I think if you see what I mean, yeah. Uh, is growing up in Britain give you a certain edge in the way you think about the world? Like, does moving to a different country, although the same kind of language, change the way you think or not? Yeah, I mean, I you know I you know my father was. Uh, he was an engineer, but he 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 started working in the colonial service, you know, and he spoke spent. I don't know what's colonial service. Like the British colonial government, he worked oh, okay. in West Africa, in Nigeria, and in the Gold oh, Coast really? and the colonies. So did you travel with them? So when I was a kid, you know, we lived overseas. We lived in the West Indies, in Barbados, and Trinidad, oh. and so so I grew up in a house, you know, full of about. We moved back to England, but you know. The house was full of African art and books about the world. And, and my father, you know, he hated England. So then he moved back overseas. He ended up working in Saudi Arabia, you know. So, so then... It's a peculiar place. So we had a very globalized, you know, we had a very... I had a very globalized uh, kind of upbringing, I guess, you know. And I always... I just find it so exciting, you know, traveling and just understanding, you know. And I remember, like, when I take these classes on economic development... I guess I thought I knew something about poor countries, hmm. but like what I learned never resonated with anything that I Red. thought I knew about developing countries. You know, like what I learned in the economic development class never kind of resonated with somehow my own probably fairly incoherent notion of like what were the problems in Africa or what were the, you know, so, so I think, I think, you know, like for example, one of the greatest things, you know, for me personally, kind of intellectually and professionally, you know, is I started working in Colombia, you know, in South America. I've been, t I teach every year, I've taught every year for 25 years in Bogota at the University of the Andes. You know, I have like all of these Colombian students everywhere, people I've taught and written letters. For, I teach in English, yeah, but, you know, I do, I do a lot of research in Colombia. I have like, the department now is full of, there's like six of my ex-PhD students are like in this economics department where I teach. And that's just been great for me because I just learnt about a culture and a society which is something very different from England or the US or where I grew up. And and that's, you know, just kind of that has been fantastic also. It's been, I mean, it's been a sort of transformative experience for me, helping me think about social science and and uh, my wife is Colombian, you know. Oh. So it's just like we're very, I'm very involved in that. And, and you know, so that's being able to experience different cultures like that i think that's a real privilege you know and it's it's one of the great things about academia and i think it helps you reflect on 
why is the United States so successful? You know, why is Britain like it is? Why is Colombia so different? And I see. Yeah. Um, your co-author, Darona Chamoglu. Yeah. Uh, he was a growth macroeconomist before you met, and you know he was doing endogenous growth and so on. Kind of, he was doing all sorts of things. <laughs> but, uh, but you were doing economic and you know political development. How did you, how did you guys meet? Yeah. Why did you meet, and how how does this co-authorship thing start? Well, we met we met in March 1992 when I gave a job talk at the London School of Economics. And he was a PhD student. He was a PhD student. Him and Tom Piketty, they were both sitting in the front row, and Fabrizio Zilibotti, who's also a very distinguished economist at Yale now. All wow. three of them were PhD students sitting in the front row together at the LSE. So I gave a job talk about my dissertation work, which was on repeated game theory, of all things. Uh, and uh, and then we went out for dinner. Like he, So him and Piketty were like the star students. And so we went out for dinner, me, him, Piketty, Kevin Roberts, and Ken Binmore, who were like two economic theorists at the LSE. And I still remember, actually, we walked out. During the seminar, he kept interrupting, Asamoglu kept interrupting me the whole time and saying, no, 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 but that assumption, you know, if you change that assumption, that result wouldn't go through. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, God, who is this irritating guy, you know? And then <laughs> and it's we, your job to we, <laughs> we went out, it was my job yeah. you know, But you know what economics yeah. is like. People are very... Like interrupt each other. Yeah, so, that's, yeah. that's the culture of economics. So then... So then we, walked, we, we, we went out for dinner. We, sat, we went to this Indian restaurant in Covent Garden and we sat next to each other. And I guess we just, we really got on at a personal level. And then we just realized we had all sorts of, just we had all sorts of things in common, like interests in common. And then I took a job in Australia at the University of Melbourne. So actually my first job, I taught in Australia for, and I, you know, I went to Australia, but you then your tenure there too, right? I left before that really okay. happened. I was I was on the faculty for three years, and I just I taught for two years. But in the first year I was there, I came to a conference at University of York in England, which and he Asimoglu was at it, and we kind of connected, and then we started talking on email, and you know, email just got invented at that time. <laughs> I went to Australia. I remember this guy explaining to me this is like September nineteen ninety two explaining to me what email was i had no idea what email wow. was so 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 then we started connecting and we started talking about ideas and then i i taught in australia for two years and then i came and i visited the university of pennsylvania for the year and then we got together at this conference at yale and just started talking about ideas and then i went up to at that time he was at mit so he'd been hired by mit then and then we started talking about ideas and then we we, we were talking about all sorts of different stuff like macroeconomics and labor, all sorts of like all over the place. And then one day, we, I, we, the, the, the end of the year, I was at UPenn. So this was like spring 1995, I guess. Uh, we were in his office at MIT and we wrote all our ideas, like we wrote the, our ideas up, like one, two, three, like different, like four, five, six, all the different ideas we had. And we sat there trying to figure out like, we had kind of half-baked, you know, five-page note on this or five-page note on that. Like, but what what was the most interesting, like, we should work, we should just, like, commit to one project. So what was the most interesting idea we had? And we decided the most interesting idea we had was was what turned into this paper, Why Did the West Extend the Franchise? You know, which is this... It's 2000 this, APSR paper. Right? No, no, the 2000 in the QJE, yeah. Oh, okay, so, sorry. So that, that took a time to... It took time to get the model right, and it took so it time... it took, like, five years, basically. Well, until it was published, yeah. Oh. We probably submitted it in 1998 or something. You know, it takes time after you submit. It took about three years to get the model right and get the motivation right. We had to read a lot of history books and... 
And so that's, you know, we, but we, we realized that we'd stumbled onto a fantastic topic, you know, because that, and the reason we, we did that was because I was actually at a, I was trying to teach myself the political science literature and I was doing it at the University of Pennsylvania by Steve Coates, who's a very distinguished political economist. I asked him like, you know, like, what should I read? What should I read? You know, and I'd go into the library and I'd take the American Political Science Review and I'd just go back edition, issue after issue after issue for 20 years just to kind of see what, what the literature was. And then I did, you know, it's kind of fun. Now you have Google Scholar. But anyway, like in those days, that's, that's what I did. And then at some point, I realized, uh, I remember calling up Asamoglu saying, like, oh man, like this topic, this topic is like so much better than we thought. There is no model of democratization. Like there's no mathematical model like, in political science of this topic. It's like totally unresearched. So then I guess we realized like, oh, come on, this is like so important, this topic, and no one's done anything on it. This is just fantastic. So that's, that's why we picked that topic. Yeah, so that was a long answer to your yeah. question. Uh, yeah. When you write books together, uh, how do you divide up the work? Who has comparative advantage in what? Like somebody does, you know, history, somebody does writing. Or... I think, you know, we've been working together so long now. Like, it's really hard to say. Yeah, we're really good at like dividing tasks and you read this and I read that and you write, you do the first draft of that and I'll do the first draft of this and then things go. Like, you know, we get on together so well. We're such good friends and we're so used to each other's kind of like the way of working, you know, that it's very easy to do that. I mean, sometimes he takes initiative and does something. And like at the moment, he's telling me I have to read this book by Richard Wrangham, who's this primatologist at Harvard. Okay. Richard Wrangham. He's a like he studies Primates. chimpanzees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's about, he's trying to make these analogies to, he's like, he also writes about evolution and human behavior. Like he has a very famous book about cooking. Like cooking, cook, cooking, the invention of cooking, like, like cooking. How, why people heat up the, the no, food. So, so his claim is that if you look archaeologically, the invention of cooking in human, humans invent cooking, like cooking meat, yeah, yeah, cooking, yeah. you know, like that, 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 that makes it much more efficient processing, you know, nutrients and proteins. So the human brain gets much bigger at the time when cooking. Invented. Yeah. So the claim yeah. is that the invention of cooking, cooking food, because it allowed humans to process nutrients much more efficiently, led to a massive increase in the size of human brains. So he has, he has a book about wow. that, Richard Wrangham. So, so it's very interesting. So it increased our cognitive capabilities too. It massively influenced wow. cognitive abilities. That's that's the claim. So 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 so. But he has a new book about norm, social norms, and like thinking about what's distinct about humans from other primate societies. So so Asimoglu has been reading that, and you know so. Interesting. Yeah. So we, it's, it's a very, yeah, it's hard to, hard for me to describe. Yeah. What is your opinion on current state of economics, PhD education? They don't teach history. They don't teach history of economic thought and they don't teach, you know, philosophy and so on. Do you think those subjects are worthy of a trade-off, uh, with, you know, micro macro metrics or like, how, how would you think about, you know, yeah. PhD education, asking for a friend. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I think, you know, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I think that, you know, I'd, I'd done lots of different things, but I didn't do it all at the same time. I always, you know, like when I was a student, I was just trying to learn general equilibrium theory and game theory and all these technical things. And I was super interested in political economy, but it didn't exist. You know, I didn't really understand how to study that. And then there was all this sort of social choice theory, but I couldn't understand how that related to politics. And the answer is it 
doesn't really okay. uh, but it sort of seemed like it might do you know but it's very technical and complicated and then there was all this i was very interested in all this stuff in history and development you know because as i was saying i sort of I, I sort of thought i knew something about because you, know, you grew up in this kind of yeah and i've, I've always been like super fascinated by history reading history books but then i how do you study that? I couldn't figure out how you studied that. Like, it's just so complicated development and you have to know. I, I just couldn't, it was just too complicated to handle. And so, so I guess like I've done a lot of things, different things, you know, and in the last 10 years of my life, 15 years of my life, I've spent a lot of time in developing countries, you know, like doing field work, talking to people, interviewing people, you know, I'm going to Bolivia next week for 10 days with a friend of mine, Bolivian friend, and we're just going to go and do field work in these rural areas and talk to people, wow. trying to understand how this institution works called the Ayus, which is like a traditional way that Bolivian society kind of organizes and functions politically and economically. And so, so, you know, so I do, I've done a lot of that in the last 15 years, you know, but I never started doing that until like the age of 45, you know. So, so, and you know, I, I don't. As when you're a PhD student, you can't, you can't do field work and learn how to do empirical stuff and learn theory. You can't do all of that. You can't do philosophy, and there's too many things to know. So I always say, you know, you the, you have to just like you have to do it. You have to space it out. You know, you can't expect students to do things that you were not able to do yourself. Like I see. You know, so so, so I think good. you have to specialize. Yeah, and I I think that. You know, I think the economist toolkit and, 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 you know, is, is very powerful and it takes a lot of work to master it. You know, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of concentration and seriousness and, you know, and, and that you should focus on mastering that. And, and, but, 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 but start asking, you have to learn how to ask interesting questions. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's the questions that matter. You know, we're, we're interested in the world and why the world works the way it does. That's why we become social scientists, not because we're interested in whether the value function is like twice yeah, differentiable, okay. right? Yeah, so, yeah. so then there are these technical things that you have to worry about. But just keep your eye on the important questions and, 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 and just start finding a way of, of addressing them and, 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 and tackling them. And, and I, think you can, I think you can combine that, you know, so... so okay. uh, Interesting. Uh, in one of your previous interviews, you have mentioned that you don't really like consulting foreign governments in their, you know, economic strategy development or, or you know, economic growth consulting and so yeah. on. Uh, why is that? Well, I had, I had one experience of that in South Africa, and it was awful. I thought it was absolutely awful. Like. It was this team of all these people at Harvard, you know, who went uh, mostly from the Kennedy School, but there were all sorts of people involved in that, Abhijit Banerjee and Philip Aguillon advising the government in South Africa. And I just felt like, first of all, you know, these people don't know anything about South Africa, <laughs> and but they promise the moon, you know, they promise they're going to increase the growth rate by 5%, or they promise... And I just felt like it was just dishonest. You know, it's just, you can't promise. Like, we don't understand enough about the problems to be able to promise, you know, you're going to do this or that. And I, I just thought it was just a lot of bullshit, basically. And I felt like dishonest, you know. It, I felt it was like really dishonest intellectually. Like, as academics, you know, yeah. I'm very happy to talk to anybody 
you know, who's interested. And like, I'm happy to think about any problem or, you know, like my friend Timothy Milovanov, you know, in the he Ukraine. Lets you think about it in Ukraine. If he wants me to think about, help him think about something in Ukraine or whatever, I'm happy to talk to him. You know, I know politicians in Colombia, for example, or in Africa that, you know, that I, uh, you know, that I, I believe in, I believe in their sincerity and their honesty. And, you know, I, one thing that's always struck me is that when it, any country you go in, in the world, no matter how poor or dysfunctional many aspects of the society may be, there's always serious people who want to change things. You know, I mean, I've worked a lot the last 10 years in Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, it's like one of the poorest... Wow. So, most so Central Africa, right? In Central Africa. Yeah, yeah. the Congo. You know, the yeah. famous Congo, King Louis I mean, there are two and, Congo. Yeah, there's also Congo. Yeah yeah, 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 I've been there too. But, oh, okay. but, but, but that's, you know, I don't know the... I don't know the I actually taught the grandson of the president of Congo Brazzaville. Very is it in Chicago or in Harvard? Harvard. Yeah, very interesting. Anyway, yeah. but you know, in Congo, you know, so Congo, there's no roads. You know, it's really poor. It's unstable. The government doesn't control half the country. But there's lots of there's lots of there's lots of corruption, sure. But there's also you know there's people who want to change things, and you know, and 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 I think that's true everywhere in the world. You know, so 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 I I just tend to. You know, somebody wants my help, and I, you know, and I feel it's sincere. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help them think about something or do something that I'm, I'm capable of doing. But I just, to me, that business of economic advising is just, you know, it's. But 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 uh, to be fair, right? Like, take a country that is underdeveloped, poor institutions, and so on, and they let's say the the political will exists and they want to improve. Who th- who should they ask if they can't if if you think it's dishonest to ask, you know, a whole bunch of Harvard professors, well, like, I, I mean, who, I think it's just honest, it's you know, dishonest to show up in Uzbekistan and say, "I'm gonna, I'll be here for a week, and I'm gonna tell you what you need to do to but, increase but the growth that, rate though? by five Like somebody has to do that, though. Like, yeah, but like, that, that, that you need a much more sustained relationship and commitment, and yeah, you have to try to build. You know, if you're a country, you know, who wants to do that, then. Then I think there are people, you know, there's lots of people at the World Bank or, or you know, or the International Monetary Fund, very clever, well-prepared people, you know, but, 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 but you have to engage in a, in a kind of real relationship. And, and, you know, I mean, the problem with so much of that is that they come and they tell countries what to do. Exactly. You know? and, but and, sometimes and, they don't know a lot of context, too. They don't know the context. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a matter of, you know, developing kind of intellectual capacity within the country, you know, and trying to, you know, that's what many, you know, if you look at, the, you know, there's many interesting examples of that, like in Indonesia, for example. You like know, the, the Berkeley Mafia yeah, or whatever? Yeah, but, 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 <laughs> like but, but, but they, developed, Chile they developed their own kind of capacity, autonomous capacity to evaluate ideas and say, is that a good idea for us? Do we really want to do that? And they could criticize it. They could... So I think that's about investing in education. It's about developing your own talent and your own people. And, you know, think about the Chinese. The Chinese are very good at that also. Yeah, like yeah. very, I was many years ago, you know, like 20 years ago, I went and gave these lectures at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. And one thing that just really impressed me was just the, con- the self-confidence of these Chinese people. Academics? Academics, okay. yeah. And not, not, not even, none of them had studied overseas. They were all... You know, yeah. but they were like, yeah, that's interesting. We could think about it. You know, they were like, we'll think about it. You know, and you have a Tsinghua thing, right? Like the the thing from. Tsinghua oh, this University. is from, no, this is from Peking University. Oh, Peking, Justin, sorry, yeah. Justin, Justin, Justin Lin, very interesting 
example of that. He invited me to give these lectures oh, there. Okay. Yeah, it's a Peking University. Oh, Peking. Yeah, I, I find China absolutely fascinating, you know, and, and so, so I think that's an, in, you know, they, they pick and choose ideas like Japan, same yes. thing. And, and I think you have to engage. That's the way you have to engage. Of course, you know, academics in the United States know lots of things that are useful for developing countries, but, but, you know, they also know things that are not useful. <laughs> so I think you have to have the capacity to pick and choose and, and, and decide what's right for your, for your society and your country and what will work in your country. Just a second, do you want to replay something? We have three minutes on this tape. Do you want to replace yeah. it? Yeah. Click, and I think we have very few questions left. Like, okay. Uh, almost done. How's it going? Is it okay? It's good. It's fun. Yeah. Is it all right? Yeah, I, I love it. I don't know how... <laughs> So th those both are working right now, right? Can you have a pen? Uh, I have a pen. Yes. There you are. Just stick with this and lay it over It's old school tapes. Yeah. That's that, yeah. It's not all digital. Or is that a chip? It's digital. digital. Yeah, it's digital. But it's not. It's not going like yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, are saying local economists are better equipped in thinking about development than somebody from you know the United States who comes in for ten days and then tells them how to how to reform. Is I think so. Yeah, okay. I think I think that's very important to develop that autonomous capacity. Yeah. What do you think about textbook textbook view of economic development? Like a lot of people criticize economic textbooks being you know unrealistic and so on but for me if you live in poor country textbooks serve as pretty good first approximations of what has to be done like say free trade it's not a trivial idea say in uzbekistan yeah no i mean you know the level of you need to invest in education and you need to have entrepreneurship and yeah you need to have trade but you know maybe you also need to manage <laughs> trade and 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 you know think about comparative advantage and you know i mean i think that you know if you looked at countries again that have been very successful in the last 50 60 years in terms of industrializing and exporting and yeah that trade has been important but they man managing trade you know if you look at south korea or anywhere you know they 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 manage that in their in the best interests of the country so 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 i agree with you that what's in textbooks that's all important for the poor country to do, but it's often not really explained how you do that. You know, it's sort of yeah. like, you know, like what are the barriers to that? You know, if it's so obvious what you need to do to become developed, why don't you, why doesn't everyone do it? I mean, maybe know? there are political constraints, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean you know, the, I the social incentives versus private incentives are so different. You know, if you are, you know, uh, say an autocratic leader somewhere, you don't necessarily want to free up trade because some people are benefiting from, sure. from restricted trade, sure. for example. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Sure, yeah. sure, uh, sure. Uh, but that's, that's not a problem you learn how to solve in an economics textbook. That's the thing. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like as a goal, you know, as an aspiration, like saying economic textbooks argue say basically a free trade is good for everyone. It's prepared to improve it. Yeah. Yeah. Do we do we have to think in in this way? Well, like, is is there value to economic textbooks, or do you think they're obsolete? And no, I mean, I you know, I think I think obviously there's value to to ideas, you know, and getting people 
who may not understand. You know, I think it's think look think about the debate in the United States at the moment about, you know, the about China, yeah. for example, or trade, or the wall, or Mexico, yeah. or I think you could say that a lot of people don't really understand in the way economists understand the benefits of trade. So then there is an important there is an important you know role for just clarifying these ideas and trying to explain them to people and illustrating what are the costs from not having free trade and but at the same time you know economists un- massively underestimate how much dislocation trade causes you know think about yeah, you know yeah. my, own co- my, my own country britain you know britain you know like the, the british politicians massively underestimated the the dislocation that was going to be caused by free labor mobility within the European Union. You know, they just signed up for this free labor mobility, and some economists probably told them that's fantastic. You know, but in it fact, was a Pareto improvement though. Like you know, it increased the whole pie, but the the problem was redistribution. Well, right? but the politicians didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah, they didn't think about the redistribution. But, but increased the whole pie. Just uh, that's pr- yeah, yeah, but economists tend to focus too much on that, and on they the, don't the think pie? enough about all the other consequences of it. You know, like political consequences, like Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, by many counts, we are living in the most peaceful time in the history of humanity, and you are professor of conflict studies as well. So, what is your theory why why the violence has declined? And do you agree with this statement, by the way? Oh, this is the Stephen Pinker. Yeah, yeah. well, I, you know, it depends on how you normalize. Things. I mean, it's true. If you normalize fatalities by by you know by Violence. population, oh, yeah, so okay. you know if you want to normalize by population, then violence has gone down. But I think that's but that's even a big in raw de- numbers, like saying crime in the U.S. Like say South Side of Chicago is was pretty notorious say uh-huh. like twenty years ago. Yeah, it's not better now, much better, but still better. You know what I'm saying? Like. Generally, the crime is, is low in the U.S. and then most of the developed world. Like, yeah. What's going on? Why why there is so so little conflict? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. You know. I mean. You know. You're at not that, the at that, at that level, at that level, you know, I'm not sure. I I have research on that. I guess if you wanted to push me, I'd say, you know, there is change in the world. You know, if you think, I mean, we talk about this a little bit in the new book. You know, like where we we talk about the corridor and like the size of the corridor. And we point out that, you know, there's many things about the modern world that have changed, you know, that make this corridor different. You know, it may be much broader than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago, you know, like structural factors to do with, you know, there's much more democracy in the world now than there used to be. So people participate much more in politics. There's more accountability. You know, we have other research showing that tends to promote public good provision, you know. So perhaps, perhaps a sort of political development of some, in some senses, has been moving societies towards greater participation or greater inclusion, and that has that spills over into less conflict, you know, in, in international relations as a stylized fact, you know, that democracies are much less likely to fight each other than other types of political regimes. So you could imagine that political development spills over, you know, into lower levels of international or interstate conflict. So, so I, I, I'm not sure I have a great answer you know, for your question, but that's kind of where I'd go. In your new book, The Narrow Corridor, you argue that there are basically two steady states. One is very strong Leviathan, very strong state. And the second one is... Three. Three steady oh, states. Oh, three. Yeah. Like, I mean, two steady states, though. 
Like the, you talk about corridor being not very sustainable and not very steady. Well, well there's let's, a, let's, let's, let's an inclusive three. steady state. Let's say, yeah. let's say there are three steady states. So there's there are two bad steady states. Yeah. One very strong Leviathan, very authoritarian, like Mao's China. Yeah. Strong society like Yemen in Yemen. the last hundred years yeah. or something. Yeah. No, last and, thousand very, years. Yeah, yeah, thousand years or something. So it's really terrible states to be in. Um, when there when the state is weak, there's a lot of violence. When the state is strong, there the violence levels are, are lower, but but still very so very a lot bad. Of re repression, yeah. A lot of repression, and the only hope that humanity can hope for is that this narrow corridor between the yeah. state and, and society, yeah. in which the prosperity happens. Yeah. You, you know, Do you I can see, you can see, you can see. You know, if you've read my Why Nations Fail, you can see how we came to think like that. Because in some sense, China and Yemen, in Why Nations Fail, China and Yemen are both extractive. Correct. You know. But like the more you think about China and Yemen, hair, they're, they're, no, 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 but they're, but they're radically different. Yeah, I you know, yeah. they're rad those societies are extractive for radically different reasons, and that those differences are extremely important if you want to think about political development or how would Yemen change or what would you have to do in Yemen, you know, to make it more inclusive and what would you have to do in China? And so, so we just, you know, we just decided that. You know, we could we could we could we could develop a simple framework which would allow us to speak in a much richer and you know more interesting way about these differences and between this balance between the state and society, and what 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 was it? You know, what what circumstances allowed these kind of much more inclusive societies to emerge? Uh, so I think it ends up being much more complicated than why nations fail, unfortunately. But 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 but, but I you know I. Yeah, I understand. But I have this one question that all like lingered in my mind. Okay, that you're saying, you know, there's two types of states, and it's really persistent, right? Like one of the one of the arguments in the book was that Yemen was pretty bad. Yeah, for like entirety of its history. Yeah, it was what we know. Yeah, yeah it's like which is quite it, a lot. the, the yeah. society was was much stronger than the state yes. for, for the entire time. And China too, like the, from the empires and stuff, like uh -huh. the, for all of the dynasties were yeah. pretty bad. I, I kind of buy it, but then I have some counterexamples that I was thinking mm. about. Like, say, Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, Leviathan collapsed. S society became strong. It started becoming democratized, uh, you know. Did it? I mean, it became like a you know, at I least think... flawed democracy. You know, the, the free press was there. The elections were there and so on. And then oil prices went up. And then Leviathan... But I don't think back. I don't think you know if you look at the collapse of the Soviet Union that was that was not a result of like popular mobilization or society getting organized it was it was the elites falling out you know it Correct. was it was it was Gorbachev trying to 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 to, to deregulate the system it was communist elites like uh, you know mounting a coup against him because they were unhappy and then you know the Yeltsin who was Yeltsin he was a communist elite you know all these guys, so so it was much more at the level of like elite Politics. I don't think that ever got into civil society. No, actually, I think it was. I mean, I think Yeltsin wouldn't have that much of support because you know there was like at least two two coup attempts against it, and and basically the people of of Russia defended the democracy, if you will, against a coup attempt. Remember, like Gorbachev, for example, like when when Gorbachev was in his resort, yeah. and the generals took over the power and said that. We are. We but are then there was Yeltsin on the tank. You correct. Know, that but seems he, like more like the military. Than correct. But then the, the, the point was that, like, they listened to him precisely because there was so many people behind him, not 
not because the tax all the other tax were yeah. were with them. But I so. think if you look at that period, you see though, you know, think about this loans for shares privatization. Yeah, you know, yeah. so things went on without any kind of accountability or constraints on but in your you model know, they wrote this constitution with very strong presidential powers i mean i would say you know that, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's a failed it's a failed attempt at at, at destroying the leviathan yeah that, that that and you had this whole security state that kind of persisted which putin was kind of ingrained in you know, there was a sort of deep state. That's the that's I the terminology that President Trump would use. There's a deep state that so was never the you know, I think if you, you know, if you look at like Western, you know, you look at the Czech Republic, or you look at places, Poland, for that, example. yeah, that adopted much more parliamentary institutions, far more checks and balances. You know, Poland that was a solidarity. There was a real upsurge in civil society and a kind of popular reaction in a way that you never had, you know, in, 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 in Russia, it seems to me. I mean, I see, I, you I know, maybe, yeah, you know, yeah. you know more about I, it. I'm not sure. Than I, you know, but, but, but so I would just say that Russia never got in the corridor. I mean, that's actually, I mean, one chapter in the book, we actually discussed this example of the collapse of Eastern Europe and these very different trajectories. And that every country took. What, yes, why did they? We used the, our kind of theory to sort of, describe these post-communist dynamics uh, in, in, in Eastern Europe. Well, that's a kind of like application to try to show that the model helps you think about this variation in the world. Uh, I see. You have a recent paper uh, with Darona Chamoglu, uh, Suresh Naidu and Pascal Restrepo yeah. on does democracy cause growth? Yeah. And you use instru instrumental variable technique uh, to basically look at democratization of the neighboring countries to see whether democracy affects growth, right? Yeah, I'm not sure that's the most convincing, you know, part of the paper. I think, okay. I think, I think what's... So, like, can, what, can you pitch what, me the paper, though? I think, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that paper, like, what I find personally interesting about it is, you know, it's like the work we did on modernization theory, you know, 15 years ago, which is you kind of take the data and you do the simplest thing that an economist would think of, which is, you know, you do kind of a very standard panel data analysis and you find... You know, in the modernization, you know, when we did that research, we found no evidence, you know, of this modernization mechanism, like just, yeah. this, you know, and then what we found straight away is very robust, positive correlation between, you know, democracy and public good provision and economic growth, you know, so, so, so. So, 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 you know, so, so I, you more know, papers I, are coming. Is that what you're trying to say? Hmm? It's a first approximation. No, no, and more no. papers are coming. No, no, no. I, I think what's interesting about that is just the simplest thing you do and is you very robust. robust. And, yeah. you know, then you know what it's like in economics. Then you have to do more complicated things yeah. and more and more complicated things. And you have to, you know, you're always worried about causality, you know, about, you know, it's obviously not exogenous democratizations democratizations may occur for lots of different reasons there could be many other factors which influence whether or not you democratize but also your economic growth and so then you know what you're describing is some of the more sophisticated ways we try to control for these problems of of you know like of kind of interpreting a correlation as being a causal relationship but but i honestly think in that case the simplest thing is very surprising you know because because you know, because people are always saying, oh, it's so complicated, we don't really know that whether democracy is, you know, well, no, obviously, the simplest thing you do works. So, so, and that, that was surprising, actually. Then we had to go and look at these other people's papers and understand. It was like, surprising why to me, too. Why didn't, why didn't other people find that? You know, so why? 
I don't, I don't, I don't oh. know. They always try. People try to do two things that are too complicated. Sometimes, sometimes simpler things are are more, you know, are better. Uh, like the, with that modernization stuff, you know, we just plotted. I remember we just plotted the data. Like you can just see, just plotting just the data. QGE paper. No, no, no. The the American Economic Review paper, Income and Democracy. Income and yeah, democracy. if you just look oh, at the changes and you plot the changes, the plot, it's just like a huge cloud. There's just no relationship there whatsoever. If I just look at the change in income per capita and the change in democracy or the change in, you know, years of education, average years of education or some measure oh, of you mean human the, the, capital. The, you didn't find any relation. Yeah, it's just a yeah, cloud. Yeah, yeah. You just see there's like, no, modernization is a statement about the changes. You know, as you develop, you should become more democratized. So that's, let's look at the changes, you know. So you look at the changes and you see there's nothing there, you know, like with that, either without doing anything, you know, did, did, like nothing. It's just looking at the raw data. So, so that's, you know, like I always think, like, do, you know, just I always tell students, you know, a good picture is worth a million regressions, you know, like just just like a good. If you look at that Colonial Origins paper, which is our most successful paper that we ever wrote, like about settlers mortality. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the pic, you just see the pictures, like the whole story is there in the pictures, you know, and, and so there you have to show that the, these correlations are robust and they have a causal interpretation and. And, but I always find that like much more convincing. A good picture is worth yeah. lots of analysis. You know, you don't believe me. I don't know because <laughs> you know some things you can't really plot because to to be able to plot the picture you have to have like two variables or something. But now yeah, and there's confounding yeah. factors, and you know you could say Jeffrey Sachs had a good picture, but it turned yeah. out to be <laughs> spurious. No, yeah, for example, the, the latitude, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's, yeah, that's a was, counter that, that, that's, what, that's what I was in my mind actually. Yeah. I'm kind okay. Of yeah. So you that, could read that. yeah, that's a that's a uh, so, that's a bad picture. <laughs> at the end of the program, I usually ask short answer questions, okay. like yes, no. You choose one of the of, of the two, so okay. I will start. Okay. Um, Jared Diamond or Yuval Noah Harari. I think they're both very interesting. But you yeah. have to choose one, if you choose one. Jared Diamond, yeah. City of Boston or Chicago? Chicago. Is Milton Friedman overrated? <laughs> yes. Oh. I think his methodological, his famous me essay on methodology is very confused. Ah. There's a lot of damage in economics. About the unreality, you don't need to care about the reality of assumptions. Yeah, the, the, the pool guy, the... Yeah. Okay. Uh, Douglas North or Man Carlson? Douglas North. Tea or coffee? Depends which time of day it is. Okay. Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts or Cambridge, United Kingdom? Cambridge, Massachusetts. Who's your favorite British economist? Ever or now? Ever. Adam Smith. Karl Marx or Thomas Piketty? Karl Marx. Uh, I have this quote, uh, my favorite quote of Tolstoy. He yeah. says, all happy families uh -huh. look alike and all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Do you think that relates to countries' development too? All developed countries are alike and all developing countries are no. miserable in their own way. Okay. No, because, 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 because there's so many differences between Sweden or the United States or Canada or Britain or... Japan, or so I think the rich countries are very dissimilar, also, you know. Thank you for listening to Hashimov's Economics.